Hill Church, great to be with you. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Especially if you're a guest today, we want to say welcome. Uh, as the kids are making their way to their classroom, uh, one thing that we wanted to uh, announce to you guys is that we have uh, the First Mercy Hill Church Youth Group starting um, next Sunday. And so, yeah, uh, Sunday afternoon, the first Sunday of every month, at least for the rest of this year, the first Sunday of every month from 5 to 7 o'clock, the youth of Mercy Hill will gather together. And um, yeah, the beginnings of a youth group will be started and then we'll reevaluate and uh, around the first of the year and see if we we make that a little more frequent, um, but we're so grateful for leadership who've come to um, our elder team and said we really want to provide a space and a place for kids where they can uh, be with their friends, but they can also bring their friends who don't know Jesus and can introduce them to Jesus and where we can just be together and have fun and also learn from His Word. So we're really excited about that. There'll be more information um, in the listening guide next week, or you can ask Jerry about that. Jerry's in the back. Back row wave, Jerry. Yeah, talk to Jerry about that. Great. Acts chapter 28. Turn with me there in your Bibles. Acts 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles that are in the aisles on your left and right. We love to study the Scriptures, and usually we use the English Standard Version translation. If you don't have one of those, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles home with you. They can be our gift to you. We've been uh, navigating through the book of Acts now for about 13 months and moving at a pretty good clip. This is it, folks. Today and next week, and we're finished. We wrap up the book of Acts, and it's been exciting. Today, we look at another section of narrative, and it's uh, the, the results of the shipwreck that we saw last week. I've entitled today's message, A Calm Soul. A Calm Soul. Uh, I started to entitle it, Going Native, um, <laughs> in order to get your attention. But uh, really where I want to end today is A Calm Soul. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this, this narrative and what we're going to see in the picture today, I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're headed. What we're going to see is just the natural desires and results of every human heart, which is to try to please God on our own. We're going to see legalism and religion at its best. And we're going to walk through what it looks like uh, not to go down that path, the natural tendency of our hearts, but to actually lean into the gospel in our daily lives and to preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis because each of us as Christians even still don't believe the gospel, at least not all the time and not in every area of our life. And we need to preach the gospel regularly to ourselves. Is that, if that's new language to you, um, that probably first was introduced to me through Jack Miller and then Tim Keller who made that um, much uh, more applicable and uh, widespread and then through Tim Chester and so we'll, we'll explain what that means along the way but let's jump into the scriptures Acts 28 we're just looking at 10 verses verses 1 through 10 after we were brought safely through we then learned that the island was called Malta the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Notice that's a capital justice. They're referring to a Greek goddess. Verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind. And they said, not that he was a murderer, that he was a god. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place uh, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and, and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. An interesting follow-up to our story last week as we looked at all of chapters 27 and saw the shipwreck. And the way that God had worked sovereignly throughout the story. You know, I've entitled this sermon, A Calm Soul. A Calm Soul. I don't know if you feel as if your heart and your soul are at a place of rest, if they're calm. We live in a day and time in which the world seems to be moving and changing faster than it's ever changed before. In 1900, human knowledge doubled about every century. In World War II, uh, by the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. Today, it's fascinating. Things are not as simple as they have been in times in the past. That's for certain. And different types of knowledge grow at different rates. So, for instance, nanotechnology knowledge is doubling every two years. And clinical knowledge is, is doubling about every 18 months. But on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. It's hard to imagine. According to IBM, one article that I researched uh, said the build-out of the Internet of Things, which is the fact that now buildings are connected technologically and cars and all types of machines, not just computers, and as all these things are sending signals and talking to one another, uh, the Internet of Things will lead to the doubling of knowledge eventually every 12 hours fascinating. It's incredible. It's impossible to wrap our minds around. But as humans, we oftentimes find ourselves moving faster and traveling further and attempting to accomplish more and more every day. We're, we've moved past the point of planners and daytimers. Maybe some of you still have a planner or a daytimer and you get made fun of. Um, but now we're in the age of, of digital uh, timers and calendars. I mean, we walk around with powerful personal computers in our pockets. And at any moment within our day, there is the temptation for these computers right at our fingertips at any moment to distract us and woo us and promise to give us more time to accomplish more, to earn more, to know more, but ultimately to be more powerful. Ultimately to be more powerful. And my question is, all for what? All for what? What are we seeking? And what is all of this knowledge and information headed towards? In the text that we study today, we're going to come face to face with a group of people who are native 
to their island. Okay, They don't have any of the technology that we've just referenced. None of it is at their fingertips. They have no exposure to the gospel. And in them, we find what I believe to be a really striking similarity in the way in which many people think about religion today. All the technology that we've just talked about, all the power that we seek, all the information and resources that are at our hands. It's interesting that within the scriptures, we find a story from thousands of years ago and we see a people who operate no differently than we do. The natural tendency of their human hearts is to push towards religion and is to push toward knowledge and power and trying to earn God's favor, believing that they can be good enough, that they're um, ultimately that they're God. And these natives, based on all their religion, um, they vacillate back and forth from high to low. They're wishy-washy. They're like a roller coaster. And when I look at many people's faith today, many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, their faith is just as wishy-washy as this group of people who had a, who had a lack of knowledge. The, how many of you know people who are on a roller coaster ride of faith? That their relationship with God and their trust in Him is purely dependent upon their emotions of the day and the circumstances of that day. We see a group of people much like that. And in these verses today, I want to point out the character of God's sovereignty that we see painted all across this story. In Paul's life, in our lives. And then I'm going to end today in Psalm 131. I hope you'll write it down. It's one of the shortest psalms to read, one of the longest psalms to learn, is what Charles Spurgeon said. And we're just going to rest our hearts there in Psalm 131. I want you to take it home with you this week with the hope that we would grow deeper in our faith, the way a child comes to appreciate his parents as he goes through adolescence and then he's a teenager or she's uh, then married. And then when your children become parents, they look back and begin to say, it's all starting to make sense. In that same way, I hope that our faith will grow, that we will come to see God, not just for the gifts that he gives us, that we would appreciate him, but that we would come to appreciate and grow deeper in our faith and our love for him, not just because of his gifts, but because of who he is. All right, that's where we're headed today. Let's look at verse 1. I've got three short points about uh, developing a calm soul. The first is this, trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. I know we've said this for about the last month. We've talked about God's providence, but you can't get away from the fact that God is sovereign and that He is at work in our lives, that He knows what's best, that He gives us what's best, that He always does what's good and right and perfect. And we struggle to believe that, but we see it represented in this story in a really fascinating way. Uh, If you look in, in verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, if you remember the map from last week, I don't think I have it in the pro presenter, Takesha. I don't know if you can toggle back to last week in the playlist and find it maybe in my message notes. If you can, it's not a big deal. But Malta was actually in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just a little island. It's literally uh, 17 miles long and 10 miles wide. That's it. That's Malta. And in the middle of the ocean, if you'll remember what was taking place, the ship was caught in this treacherous hurricane. 
And as it's being blown literally by this nor'easter that's come down and it's moving westward, but surprisingly, instead of washing up on the islands of, uh, on the continent of Africa, as many ships would have done, what we see actually take place. Oh, wow, look at that. Good job, Takesha. So Malta, I'll point out for you, yeah, is all the way over here. Now, here's what's really interesting about that. If you see the way in which the ship was driven by the storm for two weeks, remember at least two weeks, 14 days that no one ate. And during that time, Scripture says that they, they couldn't see the stars, that they couldn't see the sun, that they had literally tied the rudder off because it had become impossible to navigate, that they had lowered the sails, uh, maybe dropped the sea anchor in. They were doing everything possible just to keep the ship afloat and of all things, where does God, in His providence, where does He direct them? He directs them to the only island and the only place of harbor that's possible for them. God shows His sovereignty that's at work and His providence. It's amazing. Do you trust in God? Uh, is He the foundation for all of your life? As you think about the way that He was at work in Paul's life, and he was writing a story. Is God at work in your life? Is he writing a story? Do you trust him intimately? Do you follow him? The truth of the matter is we'll never follow God in the ordinary stuff of life if we aren't careful to develop a relationship with him, if we aren't very intentional to wake early in the morning or if it works better for you to stay up later at night, but to set aside time in which we would pursue God, in which we would silence our hearts, in which we would silence even our phones, that we would turn away our faces away from the things of the world and that we would turn our faces to the person of God and that we would regularly spend time with Him. The way I do that is to journal. There is something about that... Uh, that process of picking up a pen and, and taking a blank sheet of paper and arduously, yes, and someone, oh, my wife last week said, it just takes so long. And, I, and someone said, I think that's the point, that it slows us down and encourages us to seek the one who is the creator of all things, the one who has written our stories and who is writing our story, and that we would remind ourselves that he is God, and quite frankly, that we are not. That He is creator and that He is sustainer and that He calls the world to continue to spend last night while we slept or tried to sleep, depending on the anxiety of our hearts. That He is sovereign, that He is in control. Are you the kind of person who when you have a flat tire, what's your response? Like literally, when's the last time that you had a flat tire? Anybody had a recent flat tire? LJ has had a recent flat tire. Cool. Maybe, maybe, Kristen, maybe you haven't had a flat tire, but maybe there's something else that on your bad day scenarios, it would make the checklist of what's a bad day for you. And when that happens, my question to you is, do you trust in God's providence? Like, what's your response to that? Does it ruin your day? Do you say, oh, nuts, like, what have I done? What's your first response? Is it, is it, 
I guess I haven't, I guess I haven't uh, been pursuing God lately or I should, have, I should have had my quiet time this morning. Or, or is your response, God, I had my quiet time. I spent time with you this morning. How could you allow me to have a flat tire? You know I have to be at so-and-so. What's your response when things go wrong in your life? If we don't learn to trust God in all things, then we'll never experience Him in the ordinary stuff of life. So many Christians trust God when it comes to salvation because, hey, come on, what is there that we have to bring to the table, right? We're sinful, we fall short, um, yet heaven is, we feel like, uncertain and it's on the other side. And so we're trusting in God for the things that we know that, that we can't bring to the table, but yet in our lives we're much like the Galatians who began with the Spirit, but then we so easily try to live by the flesh, particularly in the ordinary stuff of life, when it comes to relationships, and our jobs, and our kids, and our money. See, a flat tire is one thing to talk about, but divorce and the death of a child and burdens that seem unfair and unhelpful, they compl they're completely different. And some people, when it comes to God's will, they've sorted all this out by kind of taking God's will and splitting it down the middle. There's some people who talk about God's permissive will and then His perfect will. And you get in a lot of real trouble when you do that because we don't see the Bible split God's will in that way. There's, there's a tension that exists in Scripture and uh, there's a relationship there in God's will where we struggle at times to understand His will... But we know that the Bible never connects God to sin. However, God is so powerful that the Scriptures say that He brings good even out of the greatest of evil. Think about Joseph's scenario in which Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, What you meant for evil, meaning throwing me down in a well and selling me into slavery, God meant it for good. But listen, we so often think about God's will from our perspective, but God is so powerful that not only does He bring good from evil done to us, listen to me, church, God even has the power to bring good from evil done by us. We don't usually think about God's will in that way. I'll give you an example. My coffee group right now is reading through the book of Judges, uh, which... Jeff, our Old Testament professor, um, loves. And uh, so in Judges chapter 14, listen to the story of Samson. I can't stop reading the story of Samson. It's like a train wreck happening in front of you. You just can't, you've got to see what's next, you know. Listen to the first four verses of chapter 14 and you see the sin in Samson's life. And then you see this mysterious way in which God even uses his evil deeds in order to further his will. God's so powerful. Look in verse 1. Samson went down to uh, Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So in other words, a people who have a completely different culture, who have a completely different faith system. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, 
for she is right in my eyes. Bottom line, she's a hottie, and that's all I care about. That's Samson, great and mighty Samson. That's about the depth of his maturity and his relationship with the Lord. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And you go on and you read chapter 14, and you see how God used even Samson's lustful heart in order to bring glory to himself, in order uh, to bring evil against the Philistines and in order to, to raise his name up. It's incredible as we see the way in which God is at work, that he is sovereign, that he can be trusted. How, do you freak out or get angry when you're stuck in traffic because you don't trust God? What's your response when you're stuck in traffic? Do you go, gosh, man, can't believe this. Do you think God was surprised by the wreck that you're stuck behind? Who do you think's in charge? Do you think you're in charge? How about, uh, do you become anxious when your bank account uh, gets low? If you do, it reveals that you don't trust God. Who's in control? Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Who is the provider in your life? If you overwork, then it reveals that you don't trust God. God showed me and um, just reminded me this last week of the little ways in my own life where I don't believe the gospel. I was texting a friend on Friday and uh, he said, I'm going to be over near Rhodes College. Do you have time to grab a cup of coffee? And I said, I uh, would love to another time. I've got a lot of things to wrap up uh, for, the, for Sunday and I'm just really slammed this week. And I, that was true that I had a lot of things to wrap up and I really didn't need to meet with him. It wasn't important and the things I had to work on were more important. But what was going on in my heart was I said, I'm slammed this week. And the words behind that, what's really underneath the surface is that I really believe that I have more that I have to accomplish than I have time to accomplish it. In other words, God... I know what needs to get done this week. You don't. It's all this stuff, and you've given me this amount of time, and so I'm slammed, and I'm feeling pressure because, God, I've got to make this happen. Now, what does that really reveal about the, the source of my belief in my heart? It reveals that I think that I am ultimately creator, sustainer, and God. If I don't make it happen, then it's not going to happen. And ultimately, that I'm the one who decides what needs to happen. And at the end of the week, I just decided I got this whole list of stuff that I'm convinced needs to happen. And I'm just going to put it aside and say, you know what? Apparently, God didn't want that to take place. See, folks, it's not just what we do in our lives, but it's even it's why we do what we do. It's the way in which we pursue relationships, the way in which we pursue our jobs, the way in which we think about our money and what's going on in our hearts in the midst of that. Are we trusting God? Are we believing Him in His providence? The second thing, if we're going to have a calm heart, is we need to slow down. We need to be hospitable. This part of the story in verse 2 is really 
really unusual. We could learn a lot from it. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Listen, this is a little bit of a side point. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We should come back and do a whole message on hospitality uh, at some point in time. It's really interesting, this this group of people who don't know the gospel, that they are hospitable. It was part of their culture, apparently. Uh, you see that in the movie um, Lone Survivor. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that you go and watch that movie because the language is really rough. But in that movie uh, in Afghanistan, you see this tribe and this group of people that towards the end of the movie, they literally, uh, the, the young man, the soldier who lives, he, he owes his life to that group of people because they, their tribe had a culture. If a stranger uh, was in need, they would bring them in and they would give their lives for that stranger. And that's literally what they did, is they were attacked. It's a beautiful picture of hospitality. Very similar picture to biblical hospitality. And we've lost that sense of hospitality in our culture today. Hospitality, by the way, isn't opening your home and having lots of people over. That's not being hospitable. Many times we say, oh, they're so hospitable. They throw parties all the time. That's not necessarily being hospitable. That's a part of hospitality, but it's much deeper than that. When you look at 1 Timothy and Titus, you'll see that uh, hospitality is the characteristic of a godly man, that uh, someone shouldn't be uh, recognized as an elder if they aren't hospitable. To be hospitable meant that we would bring in those who are strangers, those who don't fit into our culture, those who are under-resourced, those who have needs. Uh, 1 Peter 4.9 reminds us that all Christians are called to be hospitable. Hebrews 13.2 tells us that we should be careful uh, in how we treat strangers because sometimes we would entertain angels unaware. And it's referencing Genesis 18 in which Abraham is hospitable to three guys and it turns out that one of them was Jesus. It was the angel of the Lord and that he was cooking dinner for Jesus and had no idea until all of a sudden uh, the the meat and the bread that he had prepared, it, it flamed up and they were gone. And we need to be careful as we look to others that we are hospitable in every way. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus said it like this. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In other words, he's saying that when men go out to preach and to reach people, that their hospitality towards you is going to result in the blessing of God. It's how important hospitality is. In fact, uh, Jesus sent out the twelve in Luke 10, and He said, Whatever house you enter into, abide, and then uh, leave later. Whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is, is saying that a lack of hospitality at that point resulted in treating people as if they were Gentiles. Hospitality is so important. In Romans 12, verse 13, Paul writes, he says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show them hospitality. As Christians, we're to be given to hospitality. We're to have a proclivity 
toward loving strangers. Now, here's, here's what this looks like. It calms our souls because it's, uh, it's not natural. It, it, it's not natural in our uh, goings with our digital calendars. You know, do you, ever, do you ever wonder, do I run my calendar or does my calendar run me? Like these things pop up and tell you like where you're supposed to be next, you know? And it's so unnatural for you to slow down and actually to help those who are in need. It's so unnatural that when someone who is homeless or someone who is in need begins to approach you at a gas station or a restaurant, you look away. We tend to uh, act as if they're not there. Why? Because we are too busy. And what did Jesus tell us in the Good Samaritan? No, the Good Samaritan is the one who is hospitable, who goes out of his way in order to care for the person who is in need. Why? Why would we do that? Why would that lead us to a place of a calm heart and a calm soul? Because it brings us back to the gospel. It reminds us of the very truths and roots of the gospel, which are the fact that that's what Jesus has done for us. That when we were his enemy... And when we were going our own way, when we were literally turned from him, he reached out to us. He stepped across the dividing line between heaven and earth and he made a way giving 110% of himself in order that we could know him. There's no way that we can be a follower of Jesus who understands the grace that's been extended to us and see someone who is poor and in need and not reach out a hand to them in order to help them. This last week we were up here at uh, Circuit and we were um, talking about a potential uh, speaker installation and, uh, in which we can install some speakers and they can share them and just a kind of partnership. And uh, as I was leaving, there was a man who was on his way downtown um, And his name was Chad. And I love these opportunities that I have to interact with people. This particular guy was a street person. He'd been on the streets for a couple of years. And um, we had a really good conversation. And in it, I had a dollar. And uh, that was all I had. And I was able to give him a dollar. And he said he needed, you know, he'd used up his free nights at the mission. And he needed to pay. And... um, I don't know if that's really what he was doing or not, but I, I trusted him. He, he, he uh, just seemed like what I needed to do. I don't usually give money away. I'll many times give a Subway gift card or I'll go and take someone and give them something to eat. Um, but this particular man, as I began to share with him, uh, I could tell that he really appreciated just having a conversation with someone. And he said, so many people just turn me away and so many people... I can't even talk with him. And I begin to tell him, yeah, Memphis is a really hard place to be homeless. It's the poorest metroplex in the United States. We outrank New Orleans and Detroit. We, this is a really tough place to be homeless because there's so many homeless people. And so people just normally turn away because they get asked constantly for money. And I looked at him and I said, Chad, I'm going to be honest with you. If it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be standing here having this conversation with you. But Jesus has changed my life. See, Jesus came to me when I was poor. Jesus came to me and rescued me when I had nothing to offer. And so I can't help but go to those who are poor. And I love to talk with them and to pause 
and to say, how can I extend the grace of Jesus to you? And I said, Chad, what can I pray for? And he said, you can pray for my nine-year-old daughter back in South Carolina. And he kind of started to tear up. And, and I said, Chad, here's the deal. I'm going to give you my card, and I invite you to come meet with us any morning um, on Sundays at, at, at Mercy Hill where we gather here at Circuit Playhouse. And uh, I told him this. I said, I tell a lot of people this. But if you want to get off these streets, our church is filled with a group of people who are willing to help. Our church is filled with a group of people who have heard the gospel and Jesus has become real to them. And so their desire is to pour that same grace out into other people's lives. And Chad, here's the deal. If you'll start coming around and if you'll stick around long enough and be honest with us, Jesus will change your life and we'll be with you in that process. That's really all we're doing through the Safe Families Home. That uh, Many of you, I think we had about 10 or maybe 12 yesterday who stopped and gave their time. Every Saturday morning from 8 a.m. to noon, we're uh, rehabbing this house over on Barksdale. And uh, for what reason? So single moms can, can live there, and we're partnering with Safe Families. But ultimately, for what reason? So we can be hospitable. So we can take those who are under-resourced. So we can take those who don't have a home so we can share with them the love of Jesus Christ that's been extended to us. Jesus has called us to be hospitable. Now, the story turns, and it's really, it's really interesting here. The last point, and I'll, I'll move quickly. Uh, in verses 3 through 6, look at what takes place. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So what's really interesting here is all these guys have made it to shore. There's 276 of them. They've got this massive fire. Paul being the humble servant that he is, even though he's directed them to shore, and, and everyone on the ship's probably almost ready to worship him as a god, um, he goes and he, and he grabs a big bundle of firewood, and as he lays it on the fire, the heat drives a snake out, and it fastens to his arm. And the native people there on Malta recognize this snake as being venomous and poisonous, and they're waiting for Paul to die, yet he doesn't die. And, and their response in the beginning is to say, oh, this man escaped the sea, but now justice will prevail. And that word justice there is the, it's the Greek goddess. Um, it's spelled D-I-K-E. I think it's pronounced uh, Dicky, like Vicky. I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation, but it was the daughter of Zeus. She was worshipped as the goddess of justice. And they said, she's going to get him. You know, he made it out of the sea, but he, he's a murderer. But when he doesn't die, what's so interesting is they come back, and we've seen this earlier in, in Acts chapter 14. Paul, who, you know, in Acts chapter 14, was worshipped as a god, and then he was stoned. Okay, so now it's the reverse. He's called a murderer, but when he doesn't die, then he's called a god. It's so funny. We look at that, and we go, these people, man... Wow, you talk about a roller coaster ride. How, how much is that like so many individuals' lives today? Flat tire, things go wrong, relationships, money, don't have any money, man, can't find a job. How much of us are on a roller coaster ride with God that's so similar to what we see here? The natural bend of the human heart is toward legalism. It's trying to earn our favor with God. It comes out in so many different ways that we don't even realize it. I, I remember one of the first jobs I'd ever had. I worked at a furniture store, and my boss, um, 
an older gentleman and who owned the store and I would help him on deliveries and oftentimes we would have big curio cabinets or large uh, couches and we would try to get them through doorways and uh, many times we would barely make it through a doorway and uh, Mr. Preston would always say, Ooh, Brad, you must be living right. How many times have you heard that before? Do you hear the, the little bit of truth in that joke? Ultimately, what he, the pr- thought process there is that God is rewarding me uh, for good behavior. And Preston knew, <laughs> it's sure not me who's living right. So Brad, you must be living right. Uh, that's the natural bend of the human heart, is to believe that God rewards us for goodness and punishes us for our evil deeds. And we do this to ourselves constantly, even when we know the gospel. And that solution to legalism or or works-based theology is to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. To preach the gospel to ourselves. To remind us of the truths of the gospel, even when we don't believe them, and even when we don't feel them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you've heard this quote before, but I want to share it with you again. It comes from his uh, work, Spiritual Depression. And in it he says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I love that. You should memorize it. If you've heard it before, then read it and memorize it. You're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. You're listening to the old man. You're listening to the natural bent of the human heart, which says, go earn God's favor. It's in the times in which you say, man, my day's going really crappy. And the last thing I want to do is open my Bible right now. The last thing I want to do is pray. God, it's in those moments where you're gritting your teeth. And you're not saying God, like calling on His name, but you're saying God. You know what I'm talking about? And Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying that in those moments that we need to not listen to the God, but that we need to cry out, God. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of you. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 through 5. I just want to read them. I'm not going to talk about them. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says that we need to take every thought captive. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ is not just what we're doing, but it's why we're doing what we're doing. Why do you, uh, we've got tons of teachers in the room. Why do you teach? Do you teach because you have this kind of savior complex in which you came to Memphis in order to change the world and you're going to change them one life at a time? Good luck with that. Or do you teach because you have a divine calling on your life, much in the same way that I feel like God's given me a divine calling on mine to preach the Word, and He's given you a divine calling to teach, and that in some way, as you, by His grace, through faith, every day, show up at the crack of dawn in order to try to teach these little morons who run around and don't listen and don't have any home training, that you believe that by God's grace that He is going to pour into their lives and whether you recognize it or not, that there will be a day that by faith they will say, my life is different and my life has changed and coach so-and-so or teacher so-and-so was a part of that. Why do you do what you do? C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He said, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back 
in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. That's what we need. I want to end with Psalm 131 today. And uh, we're not going to... We're not going to finish it, uh, but I'm going to introduce it. Spurgeon said it's one of the quickest to read, one of the longest to understand. In Psalm 131, the psalmist writes, it's a psalm of the ascent. So oftentimes they would sing this song as they headed up to Jerusalem uh, in times of festival. And in Psalm 131, the psalmist writes and says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Really quickly, the psalmist is writing and he is giving positive words in verse 1. It is hard for us to understand. It sounds as if he is a wimpy man with no ambition, but that is not at all the case. He is saying, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What he is ultimately saying is, I'm taking care of my business. I'm not prideful. I'm not the king, and so I'm not operating as the king. My heart is in its place. My eyes are not raised too high. I'm not thinking too much of myself. That I am in in a place of humility. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's saying, I'm at a humble place in which I believe that God, that everything you do is good and right and perfect. And even though I don't understand it, and even though it doesn't feel as if you're with me in this moment, it's not, that's not on my shoulders to understand. It is on my shoulders to bend down, to worship you, and not to say, God, but to say, oh God. And look how he then moves on in verse 2. He says, and it it took me a minute, it took me a few minutes to understand, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I went back and a weaned child. That's, what is he, what is the psalmist trying to get us to understand here? The psalmist is showing us a picture of a child who is so comfortable with his mother, that he has reached a point of of trust in that even when the mother withholds the very thing that has brought him satisfaction in the past, he has reached a point of faith and humility and trust and assurance that the mom still knows what is best and he finds comfort in her. That's the point that God wants to bring each and every one of us that God would bring us to a point in our lives and in our faith in which the depths of our trust in Him would be so great that even in the moments where it seems as if He has removed the very gifts that we have in the past approached Him for that have brought the most satisfaction, that in those moments that we would learn simply to trust Him, not for what He offers, but for who He is and to find rest and peace in Him and with Him. Sinclair Ferguson uh, says that our problem is that we think with our feelings. We don't always feel joy in God. But by faith, we can tell ourselves that He is our joy. In times of temptation, God is all I need. I love that. Um, I love to... uh, 
I love to watch you guys worship. And um, I could be wrong about this, but I was watching um, Miss Trudy worship earlier today. And um, I love the fact that um, I think sometimes in our lives, and I've seen this, I think, in Miss Trudy's life, that sometimes when I watch her worship, my guess is that she's not worshiping God and raising her hands because she maybe feels the joy and happiness of God because her week has been wonderful and great. I know she's a great grandmother this week. Congratulations. But I think that there is a maturity at times in which she raises her hands and worships God because she knows she needs the joy that only Jesus can bring. And that when her heart does not feel as if it is raised to God, she lifts her hands in order to say, may my heart be raised to God. I want to end today reading Psalm 126 is our prayer. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm sorry, Psalm 121. If you would, just uh, close your eyes and listen to these words. Band, you can come on up. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will, ne- he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.